You know, pro wrestling's all about making money, and politics is about getting money. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Liberty Luchadors, welcome back to the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And boy, oh boy, do I have a compelling conversation for you today. It's one I've been angling for for quite some time, and I'm so thrilled to bring it to you in today's episode, the 260th episode of this program, which means that you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 260. All right, Liberty Lions, my guest today has just about done it all. He is a Navy SEAL. He is a former professional wrestler and color commentator. He's an actor best known for his role in the movie Predator. He is the former governor of the state of Minnesota, and he has authored many books, including his latest, Jesse Ventura's Marijuana Manifesto. I am so pleased to welcome Governor Jesse the Body Ventura. Governor, are you ready to roar? I'm always ready to roar. There's a rare day that I don't. You know, I had a feeling you would be. (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, it's 10 books now. Oh, wow. Okay. Just it's seven or eight with my current publisher, Skyhorse. And then I did two previous to them with different publishers. Gotcha. Well, you keep pumping these things out, huh? Well, the problem is I live off the grid in the winter down in Mexico, and that's where I do the books. And that's where I do all my reading because I don't watch TV when I'm down there. And so that it's at that point in time usually where, and I've been doing that for the past 10 years. Well, why don't we start there a little bit? What actually inspired your move to Mexico? I know you spend about half the year there, pretty much completely off the grid as far as I know. So why is that? Why do you spend so much time down in Mexico? Well, obviously I like it. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the simple answer. The weather ain't bad. You know, the weather's beautiful. I'm Ocean bound. I'm a former Navy guy. I love the ocean and always have since I was first introduced to it at age 18. And I just like the two different lifestyles of living up here in the hustle and bustle here and then living down there where it's much more laid back and you really have the world to yourself and it's only what you see. So I did it for an adventure. You know, when I came out of office, I was young enough that I wanted to have more adventure in my life as I'm reaching, as they call it, my golden years. And, you know, I actually turned 65 this year. I'm on Medicare now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what are some of the biggest differences you see in kind of just the culture in Mexico as it compared to your life in the United States? Because obviously you're, you're seeing both all the time. Yeah, the big thing is that down there, the people are surviving day to day. So they're more worried about, am I going to eat tomorrow and what happens within their direct eyesight? I can assure you where I live in Mexico, they could give nothing about the stock market. (laughs) They wouldn't even know probably what it is. They have entirely different concerns in life. And it's a lifestyle, very basic, again, of more of survival on a daily basis And I like that where when I come back here to the United States, what drives me crazy today are the freeways. I mean, you get out there in in Mexico, I don't have to deal with freeways today up here. You get out there and everyone's rushing around to do nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I live out here in Los Angeles, so uh, I can sympathize with you there on the freeways. Well, exactly. And, you know, and it's the daily hustle of all that. That I guess that's the best way I can describe it. You know, I live 
as the crow flies, I live about 50 miles from Todos Santos, Mexico, and that's the home of the infamous Hotel California. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the lyrics to the song, what the difference is, right out of the lyrics, you can check out, but you can never leave. And that's what happens if you get bit by Baja fever. You can check out, but you can never leave. Right, right. So, um, you know, Governor, longtime listeners of this program know that I'm a little bit of a nerd. I'm a big pro wrestling guy. I grew up watching and listening to your always entertaining color commentary. And you've often talked about how politics and pro wrestling share many similarities. You even taught a class at Harvard called How Pro Wrestling Prepares You for Politics. So can you just start off talking a little bit about that? How did your experience in the world of pro wrestling, maybe perhaps unwittingly at the time, prepare you for the world of politics? Well, because there are multiple reasons. Number one, in pro wrestling, I was a villain, and uh, your job is to sell yourself and uh, to the point where people will spend their good, hard-earned money to see you get beat or see you get beat up, whatever it is. And so you got to sell yourself, and that's the same thing a politician does. And actually, in pro wrestling, you're doing it for their money. In politics, I guess you're doing it for their money and their vote also. <laughs> So there's a money tie-in. You know, pro wrestling's all about making money, and politics is about getting money. You know, same thing, and as well as selling yourself. Second thing, in pro wrestling, at least in my day, they used to always say the money's made at the microphone, not in the ring. Right. So you have to be able to sell yourself and be comfortable with the microphone, be comfortable in front of TV cameras. Well, the same thing holds true in, in the world of politics. And then, of course, you got Murphy's Law. Anytime you have a match, anything that can go wrong will. And the same thing happens in the political arena. You're going to get popped a question by a media or what have you you're not prepared for. So you have to be able to think quickly on your feet. And finally, it's probably this. In pro wrestling, you may play a character that you're nothing like in real life. It may be you're just playing a character in pro wrestling and who you really are could be completely different. Same thing in politics. They portray themselves as one thing in front of the public, while behind the scenes they may be completely different. Case in point, a few years ago there was that congressman from Florida who voted vehemently against any gay rights things, you know, gay right bills and all that, and then it turned out he was gay. (laughs) Unbelievable. So there you got a person living a false, you know, persona and selling literally a fraudulent person to the public. And wrestling's the same thing. I mean, when I play Jesse the Body Hunter in the ring, yeah, there's a piece of me. That's me, you know, in the creative end of it. But that's not who I am. (laughs) (laughs) You know, who I played in the ring is not who I am in real life at all. Now, how did you first get involved in politics yourself? I know you became first the mayor of Brooklyn Park and eventually went on to run for governor and become the governor of the state of Minnesota. But what first inspired your foray into politics? Well, that was it. I lived in a a neighborhood along the Mississippi River, an old developed neighborhood, because waterways, the houses are there first. Everyone wants to live by the water. And it was right on the Mississippi, and we had a wetland in our neighborhood, and a developer came in, and there were two open lots. He built two houses, but he wanted concrete curb gutter and storm sewers. Well, we had old-fashioned ditches, and everything worked fine. Nothing was broken. So they were going to come in and assess us all $10,000 a house 
to put in concrete curb gutter and storm sewer, whatever the price was, all to appease this developer who had two homes that they would raise the price of his homes. Well, they got to do something with the water. And you were expected to pay that $10,000? Oh, of course you are. <laughs> they added on to your taxes wow. to pay for the curb gutter and storm sewer to all come in. Of course, who do you think's going to have to pay for it all? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not. You do. And then they got to do something with the water rather than let it go through a natural filter of the ditches. They can't, by law, put it in the Mississippi River. So they were going to pump it directly into this wetland, which would destroy the wetland. And this was a real wetland. It had frogs in it. It had wildlife in it. It would have destroyed it. Well, 450 of us in the neighborhood signed the petition and took it to City Hall and stated this was unacceptable. Well, we got voted down seven to nothing. And that's where my eyes opened up. You know, I could understand four to three or five to two, but we were voted down slam dunk, seven to nothing, 450 citizens petitioning their city hall. And I started getting more involved. And one day I was up there and the 25-year incumbent mayor, I had the podium and I looked at him and I pointed a finger at him and I said, you're going to make me run, aren't you? And his buddy on the council started laughing and said, you can't win. Well, I left City Hall that day knowing I was running. It was a nonpartisan election. That sounds like a challenge to me. (laughs) Well, and I'm up for challenges. You know, when I get challenged, I'll generally accept them if I'm so inclined. And so I ran. I won all 21 precincts, and I won 67% to 33% against a 25-year incumbent. And then, of course, it was during that time before it was nonpartisan. The leadership of the Democratic and Republican Party sent letters throughout everyone in Brooklyn Park calling me the most dangerous man in the city and to vote for the 25-year incumbent, which was fine. But when the election was over and I won at at a two-to-one ratio, which is a big landslide in politics, as big as you can get, then the two parties came courting me to join them. And that's what showed me these two political parties have no credibility. They don't stand for nothing. They want to own everybody. They saw your success and wanted to just kind of co-opt you then, huh? Oh, yeah. They wanted to co-opt me then. Oh, yeah. Be a Democrat. Be a Republican. I said, no. I said, I won without you. In fact, you opposed me. I'll continue to be an independent. And I've always been independent when I ran for governor of Minnesota. I was with what they called the Independence Party, which is kind of a ragtag third party here in Minnesota, and I won. So uh, I've always been independent, and I've always been anti the two-party dictatorship that runs our country. So what do you attribute that success to? Why were you able to accomplish what so many have failed to do and break through that two-party system, that two-party firewall? How did you become the governor of a state? Well, I can only attribute it to something called charisma. It certainly doesn't hurt. You're either born with it or you're not. And in my case, for some reason, the press flocks to me. I have that charisma. And uh, that's why if I would have gotten the presidentials this year, there's no doubt in my mind that I could have gotten into the debates because I would have put so much pressure publicly on the two parties. But then again, maybe not, because maybe since the mainstream media is all part of this broken system, they may have shut me out too and not talked to me. But I'll tell you what I would have done had that happened. I would have gone to the debates and got arrested trying to get in. That would have got some headlines for sure. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, because they would force you to do that. They would force you to go break a law or something in which to bring attention to the corrupt. And when Trump says the elections are rigged, he's correct. But he's incorrect on how. They're rigged against anybody but Democrats and Republicans. Right. No third entity stands a chance, except in a case like myself. Sure. I mean, you've compared them to rival gangs before, the Bloods and the Crips. They may feud with each other, but at the end of the day, they're going to control that territory. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a bit wrestling how they feud with each other, too. You know, we feud with each other in wrestling in front of you. But behind the scenes, we don't necessarily feud with each other, do we? Right. And the same thing holds true. There's another thing that's equal to wrestling. Behind the scenes, these people take each other out to dinner and they plot and plan, you know, what they're going to do. And that's the two-party system that we're engaged in today. It's so corrupt. And the fact that the Supreme Court allowed corporations to participate, that's why when I call us the fascist states of America now, people get upset at me for that. But the basic definition of fascism is when corporations take over the government. And here we are. They have. They're not our. They have. Like they're switching to my book right now. The biggest opposition to marijuana is Big Pharma. And Big Pharma controls about 70 to 80 percent of your mainstream media through their advertising money. And they have a vested interest, and pivoting to your book, they have a vested interest in not seeing the legalization of marijuana because it really counters what they're offering, all the pills, all the opiates. Yep, all the opiates, all the pills, all of that. And plus the main thing to it is so basic. Here's the real sticker why the feds won't legalize and why everyone opposes marijuana being legal. You could grow it. It would be free if you, poor people could get it. It would be like growing tomatoes in your backyard. My mom did it for years when I was a child growing up in South Minneapolis. We had a tiny little backyard. My mom would chew up about a third of it and grow her tomatoes all summer. Well, you can do the same thing with marijuana. So the government wouldn't get paid off, would they? And big pharma wouldn't control the pricing, would they? Now, Governor, you've been an advocate of marijuana legalization for a very long time, I believe, even yep. back to when you were governor of Minnesota. So yep. I'm curious what inspired you to write this book right now at this time. Why is this the moment to really push this issue all the way to the forefront? Well, because it's the moment for it, because it's on the ballot now. 23 states have now done some form of legalization through medical or recreational, and it's being voted on this fall. So it's timely, and this can be the issue that allows Americans to take our country back. Because over 60% of Americans want marijuana fully legalized now, and yet it's our federal government who's making money on keeping it illegal. They're telling us, no, no, no. Well, we can tell them, no, you work for us. We don't work for you. We're the boss, not you. And marijuana could be that very issue that could propel that thought process. And the other reason is personal. The personal reason is I lost my quality of life and marijuana gave it back to me. I was dealing with the epileptic seizure disorder and the person that was seizing, I was having to deal with it. It was two to three times a week, four years ago. The person went on four different pharmaceutical medicines over two years. None of them worked. They all had horrible side effects. 
in desperation, took the person to Colorado, got medical marijuana, the seizures immediately stopped, and the person's been seizure-free now for over two years and can now get the medicine in Minnesota. But the problem is this. What costs $30 a month in Colorado costs $600 a month in Minnesota. Really? Why is that? Because of restrictions. If it's open in a free market, it drives the price down. When it's so restricted that so little people have access to it, in order to produce it costs a lot of money. So they have to get their money back. So they have to charge you these exorbitant fees. And of course, your health insurance doesn't cover what works. Of course not. They'll cover the four pharmaceutical medicines that don't work, but they won't cover marijuana, which does work. Going back to Mexico for a minute, you know, Mexico has experienced extreme amounts of violence. I mean, unbelievable levels of violence uh, related to the war of drugs. So can you kind of touch on how legalizing marijuana in the United States would help curtail the violence related to the war on drugs in Mexico? Well, it's already curtailing it in that the cartels are dropping marijuana now. They only provide roughly 30 percent now of the marijuana in the United States because the states that have legalized the quality is much better. Now, do you want to drink Budweiser or do you want to drink a fine crafted beer? Well, marijuana is the same way. It has different strains. It has better marijuana, worse marijuana. And the stuff being grown in Colorado and Washington and all the legalization states is top quality. And so you don't need to get it from Mexico anymore. You don't need, you know, the Mexican marijuana. So the cartels are now switching to heroin and meth. And another thing that they've learned, all the states that have legalized marijuana, it's just the opposite of what they've told us. Heroin use drops. It doesn't get bigger, it drops. So legalizing marijuana is helping to curb heroin and opiates. And let me bring this close to the vest as a Minnesotan. We lost our prints here in Minnesota. Had Prince been smoking pot, he'd still be alive. But Prince died from pharmaceutical opiates. That's what killed him. The drug companies, through the opiates that he got and took, killed him. Marijuana, you can't overdose. You cannot die from taking too much marijuana. If you do, you'll go down in history. You will be the first person that's ever died of a marijuana overdose. You can die from binge drinking of alcohol, tobacco when used properly, the end result is death, and yet marijuana is illegal, and these two other products are perfectly fine. Think of it in the world, a world of jobs. How many people work in the tobacco industry? How many people work in the alcohol industry? And you could have the same employment in the marijuana industry if we legalize what do you attribute all the misperceptions over the years about marijuana to? I mean, obviously, like you just stated, there's never been a marijuana death. And yet, you know, the same person that might be horrified at the idea of somebody smoking a joint, they might, you know, go, go out and, and drink a beer and smoke a cigarette and not even think anything of it. So why do you think the public perception, even though it is changing rapidly, why has it been so skewed over the years? Well, it's been skewed from William Randolph Hearst the big paper guy back in the late 30s. He's the one that helped create reefer madness. They're the ones that made it illegal. Here's the thing that's really troubling. George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, our first and third presidents, 
If they were alive today, they'd be raided by the DEA. They'd be doing 10 to 12 years in a federal prison as major drug dealers. Anyone else see something wrong with that picture besides me? What I learned in researching and writing this book was that marijuana was the economic backbone of this country for the first 160 years of its existence. And they don't tell us that. That's kept out of our history books. You can't read a word about it in a school book. Yet our Constitution, Bill of Rights, and Betsy Ross's original flag are all made out of marijuana. Now, doesn't that make it as all-American as it could be? Wow. You know, we've been lied to about this fantastic product. And for the religious people out there who believe in God, well, then you have to believe God made marijuana, didn't he? And did he make it for us to eradicate and destroy it? No. If you believe in God, you believe God provided everything here for us to use. Why aren't we using this plant? It's got remarkable healing. Read the intro to my book by Steve Cubby. This was a guy dying of non-operable adrenal cancer. They gave him a five-year death sentence. That was 35 years ago. Marijuana's kept him alive. He then got raided by the DEA and was thrown in prison for growing 14 plants to keep himself alive. He lost 22 pounds in prison. The cancer came back and finally cooler heads prevailed and he was let out and he moved to Canada where he can get all the medical marijuana he needs. Mr. Cubby's story at the beginning of your book really was compelling. I mean, even on its own, he makes the case by himself for medical marijuana before you even get into the book. I'm curious about that, though, because, you know, we're talking about all these legal propositions coming up to legalize marijuana. And I believe nine states have some form of marijuana legalization on their ballot coming up here on Election Day. Mr. Cubby actually opposes the California initiative, Prop 64, to legalize marijuana. I'm not sure exactly all of his reasons, but he he seems to indicate it's not a true legalization bill. Right. Well, what they try to do, they try to water them down and they try to gain control, like the bill in Ohio. The bill in Ohio is going to make it to where only two corporations could provide the pot. See, you'd see the government legalize it if their corporations get to control the pricing and run the industries, like like alcohol. But the problem is the pot smokers don't want that. They want it where you have the right to grow it and that poor people can have access to it without being fleeced over by the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, look what happened on that stuff with the shots you get for bee stings. They used to be $20 a shot. They jumped over $400 a shot by the pharmaceutical industry. And that's to save people's lives who get an adverse reaction from a bee sting. How dare this country turn people's health and lives into for-profit business? See, everybody wants everything privatized. And that's wonderful. But when corporations run things, it becomes for profit. Like here's another tie into the marijuana thing. It's imperative now that they have our prisons full because they're being run by corporations. They've been privatized. Well, the only way the corporation can return a profit to the stockholders is to have full prisons. So therefore, we need to be in jail so that the prisons can make profit for their stockholders. That's ridiculous. You know, everyone talks about the Cullen Kaepernick protest, who I support. He has every right to do it, and I'm a veteran. 
But what they ought to be talking about is the fact that in our national anthem, it says home of the brave, land of the free. How the hell can we say that when we have more people in prison than any other country in the world? It's really unbelievable the amount of people that are in prison. In the hypocrisy. How can we be home of the free? Home of the brave, land of the free. When we have more people in jail than any other country, you're not free if you're in jail. Right. And that's kind of the way I'm looking at some initiatives like Prop 64. I don't think it's perfect. I think there's a lot of problems with it, but it will see less people in jail. So for me, I tend to lean towards favoring it. So do you support initiatives such as Prop 64, despite the fact, as as your friend Steve Covey pointed out, it is flawed in some way? I mean, do you think there is a, a greater good to push things forward? I think that they could be better, but you've got to, you can't just pass it and let it go as it is. You need to amend it. You need to continue working on it, much like Obamacare, health care. You know, if I'd have ran for president, I got the answer for health care for the whole country. Do you know what it is? Let's hear it. It's simple. Every citizen of the country deserves the same health care that congressmen get. Well, there you go, because the congressmen certainly have a they don't have to take your standard, you know, your Obamacare bronze plan. (laughs) They have three choices. They have three health care plans they can choose from. No, every citizen deserves the same health care they get. So if we don't have health care, neither should they. They should be forced to buy it in the private market, too. It shouldn't be provided for them because they work for us. Has anyone ever seen a case where the employee has better health care than the employer? No. And yet, with our government, the employees, congressmen, have better health care than the employers, us the taxpayers. There's your answer to health care. You either take theirs or everybody gets the same as they get. Jesse, I'm curious if you feel that other drugs, such as, say, you know, stuff that doesn't have the same kind of medical benefits that we're learning that marijuana does have, say, heroin, cocaine, do you apply that philosophy that you apply to the legalization of marijuana to other substances? Well, I believe that you should not go to jail for being an addict because addiction is a disease and certain people are more susceptible to it. And here's my argument. Caffeine is a drug. How many people can't get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee that they don't need their caffeine fix? I'm drinking one right now. (laughs) There you go. So you got all these people addicted to caffeine, and I only make that point. I don't want caffeine banned, but I make the point of everybody has their addictions, no matter what they are, and they should not be treated criminally. They should be treated medically. So for the hardcore drugs like heroin, meth, and things of that nature, you don't throw people in prison for it. You get them treatment for it. That's how you deal with it. Then it ensures in Minnesota right now, we've got an epidemic in the last two weeks. They've had 10 to 12 heroin overdoses because obviously there's bad heroin out there. Well, if you legalize and regulate and they have a place to go get it, Well, then you can try to cure them and you can ensure they're not killing themselves, getting stuff being sold in back alleys. You know what it's called? It's called addressing the issue like an adult. Well, that's one thing we don't see in politics today. Yeah, that's what we don't see. We don't see anything of thinking like an adult and addressing a problem that you know is a problem and you do it in an adult 
type of manner. Now, let me say this. I've had people say to me, well, if you legalize marijuana, what do I do then when I catch my 13-year-old with pot? You know what I say to them? It's simple. You parent. That's what you do. You do the same thing if you caught that 13-year-old with alcohol or if you caught that 13-year-old with tobacco. The same thing. It should only be legalized for adults. Children need to grow up before they're old enough to make a choice whether to use those type of products. But you notice they should all be treated equally. So that's how you treat your child. If you catch them with pot, you treat them the same way as if you caught them with tobacco or alcohol. Now, Governor, you've come out in support of your friend Gary Johnson for president, uh, I think largely because of his support for the legalization of marijuana and, and his... No, no, it's also to get us out of the wars in the Middle East, but I've actually switched now. I think I'm going to switch to Dr. Stein because she believes in climate change and Gary don't, and I believe in climate change, and I believe that it's a huge problem we have because it's very simple. A scientific fact... If there's more carbon in the air, whether it's man-made or or natural-made, the temperatures go higher. Well, right now, we are at the highest carbon level in our air in history. So we are going to have hotter temperatures. That is a scientific fact that cannot be debated. Are you officially supporting Jill Stein then for president? Is that who you're going to vote for? Well, I think that I'm going to vote for her now because the libertarians won't address climate change. And to me, it's three wars. The war on the climate, end the wars in the Middle East, and end the wars on drugs. And I think the Green Party stand for all three, don't they? All right. So most people would say, whether it's a libertarian or a Green Party candidate, would say you're throwing your vote away if you vote third party. So you're throwing your vote away if you don't vote your heart and conscience. You're throwing your vote away if you don't vote for someone. You don't vote against someone. You pick out the person you most want to be president. That's the person you vote for. You've done your civic duty then. You've chosen the person that you wanted to be president. And it ends right there. It has nothing to do with having to choose. Like the late, great Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead said, if you're made to pick the lesser of two evils, it still means you're picking evil, doesn't it? Uh, Governor, I, I got to ask before I let you go. I always hear rumors every few years about this possibility. So is there any chance of you yourself running for president in 2020? Well, the only way it would happen, it would have to be a grassroots thing where people in all 50 states would get me as an individual ballot access, because I will tell you this, I will not join a political party. There were rumors even this year of you possibly uh, joining the Libertarian Party. I was invited twice to their convention, but I disagree with some of the things they stand for, and I don't want to be labeled as being part of a party. So If people would want me to run for president, it would be incumbent upon groups of people in each state to get me ballot access. And if they did that and got me all 50 states and I could run as Jesse Ventura, a complete individual like George Washington, and run for president and give the people the opportunity to elect the second president who doesn't belong to any political party, because the first one was George Washington. If that scenario came up, I would probably do it. But that scenario probably is not going to happen, so I think I'm pretty safe. So it's going to take a real grassroots movement to pull you out of Mexico and and try to get you into the White House for four years. 
Well, like I said, I don't want to join a party because to me, then you have to have allegiance to that party. And the president to me should be an individual who has allegiance to the country, not to a political party. Uh, Governor, I just want to commend you on this book uh, by you and, and Jen Hobbs, who was kind enough to arrange this interview. Uh, it really is, honestly, and I've been studying this issue for decades, literally, and this is really one of the most comprehensive breakdowns of the case for marijuana legalization that I've ever read. You really do tackle uh, just about every angle imaginable. We've only scratched the surface here today, so I do want to recommend everyone go out, and we'll link to that book in the, today's show notes for the program, to go out and check out Jesse Ventura's Marijuana Manifesto. Before I let you go, Jesse, what is ahead for you? You know, what do you have coming down the pipeline? I believe you have a new show coming out. Let everyone know what you got going on. It's interesting that I'm pretty well banned from mainstream media in working for them because I bring up subjects that their sponsors don't want talked about. So therefore I'm a pariah. And I find it amazing. I've just signed with RT America, Russian television, and uh, I've been assured my internet show was on with them for a year And I've been assured I won't be censored and I can speak about anything that I want. And I find that just mind-boggling, that Russia gives me my free speech, which the United States of America denies me. Well, you know what they're going to say. Now they're going to say that you're you're a propaganda piece for Putin. (laughs) Really? Well... I don't think that, but you know you're going to hear it. Really? What could be more all-American than Jesse Ventura and Larry King? (laughs) And we're both on RT. And the point being is, yes, it's owned by the Russian government, but PBS is owned by our government, isn't it? There you go. There you go. Plus, here's the big point. There's no advertising. Our mainstream media is owned by pharma. Robert Kennedy Jr. is a friend of mine, Robert Kennedy's son. He wanted to go on the media to talk about vaccines and what they put in them. They wouldn't even allow a Kennedy on TV to talk about it. He was told that pharma pays up to 80% of mainstream media's bills. They actually told him that was the reason. They admitted it. They admitted it off camera. Wow. They told him that pharma, they get roughly 70 to 80% of their revenue. Look at TV today. How many drug ads are on? You're inundated with them. They're all day and all night. Take this. Tell your doctor you want this. And I got news for you. If you're telling the doctor what you want, the doctor's not a doctor. He's a dealer. (laughs) You know, shouldn't the doctor be telling you? He went to medical school. You didn't. And why do they advertise anyway? The doctor will give you what you need, supposedly. Why do they need to do ads on TV? See, the point is our media is controlled by the advertisers. And Robert Kennedy was told if anybody on mainstream even talks bad about pharma, they'll get immediately fired. That's just amazing that they would actually come out and tell him that. (laughs) They did off camera. See, they can deny it. They'll say, oh, that Jesse Ventura's lying. That's not true. But I had Robert on my show and he talked about it on my show off the grid. That's where it's all documented. He talked about it to me. I was one of the few shows that let him on. Well, Governor, I'm certainly glad that you do have an outlet here on RT coming up. So uh, before I let you go, why don't you just let everybody where they can find that show coming up, how they can get a hold of your book, and and feel free to plug away on anything else you got coming down the pipeline. I appreciate that, but you know what? I don't do distribution. You can get the book anywhere you get books, Amazon.com, all the things on the Internet, all the bookstores. 
That isn't my job. My job is to write them. I don't distribute them. And as far as me, the show is still in, uh, we're still creating it, but election night, I'll say this, election night, I will be sitting at the desk of Russian television commenting on the United States election and my days at CNN and all of them are over. I'm going exclusively with Russian TV now. All right. Well, that is must-see TV. So, everybody, I encourage you guys to tune in to RT and check out Governor Ventura doing election coverage because that sounds fascinating to me. So, Governor, I thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, I urge all the states out there, please vote and legalize marijuana. It's the best thing we could ever do. Governor Jesse Ventura, keep up the great work and keep on roaring. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Governor Jesse the Body Ventura today. And man, I got to say, I love doing this podcast because what else? What other opportunity would I have to spend 40 minutes on the phone with Governor Jesse the Body Ventura, a guy I grew up watching as a pro wrestling commentator, a guy I saw in the movie Predator, a guy I saw rise to become one of the only independent governors in the United States, and a guy whose books I've read all of <laughs> at this point. So it really was a phenomenal thing to be able to have this opportunity to speak to Governor Ventura on the phone today. And I was happy to share this conversation with you guys. I hope you found value in it. I know a lot of libertarians out there are going to get rankled by a few comments that he made throughout there. But, you know, I don't agree with everything Jesse Ventura says. I didn't bring him on the show to agree with me on every little facet of our political dialogue. I brought him on the show because at the end of the day, I do think he's an honest, compelling man who while nobody is going to accuse him of being a, a, a classical Rothbardian libertarian or anything like that, he takes a heck of a lot of positions with to line up with the ideas of liberty, the philosophy of liberty, and of course, his push for the legalization of marijuana is certainly one of those, and for the ending of this war on drugs. For me, that is the issue that I am the most passionate about. It's one of the issues that really got me into the liberty movement, and it's why I do this. You know, I see every day that we are locking people up in cages, as Governor Ventura pointed out. The land of the brave, the home of the free, puts more people behind bars than any other country on the planet, and that's a very disturbing thing. Now, if we just happen to be a very violent country, I guess I would be upset, but I could see why you'd have to put those people in jail. But the fact is, most of those people behind bars are there for a completely nonviolent, completely victimless, here come the air quotes, crimes. So there, we do have to make progress on this. We are making progress on this. I have reservations about Prop 64, which I'm going to vote on tomorrow here in California. But at the end of the day, I think... Unless something is so terribly crony capitalistic as it was in the case of the Ohio ballot, which we discussed, which essentially did hand over all marijuana production to two companies, for the most part, I think legalization efforts do need to be supported by libertarians, by people that care about the ideas of liberty, by people that are rational human beings. I don't care if you call yourself a libertarian. I mean, if you're a reasonable human being, how can you justify keeping pot illegal, even if you agree with the concept of the war on drugs as horrible as I think that is? How can you justify having marijuana illegal while cigarettes are fine? Cigarettes are a gateway drug. You know, this is something that Governor Ventura discusses in the book. Cigarettes are actually shown to cause addictive behavior and train your body to become addicted to other substances. Meanwhile, marijuana has actually helped people overcome addictions to other substances. So it really is an absurd thing on every level that this plant, this naturally occurring plant, should be considered criminal in any way, shape, or form. And thankfully... I do believe in my lifetime, we're going to see the federal government give up on this thing. And that's why I support the legalization efforts in California and other states, even when they're flawed, because if enough states do this, enough states 
thumb their nose at the federal government, they're just going to give up. The feds are going to give up on marijuana. And guess what? Most of the money that goes into the war on drugs is focused on marijuana, even today in 2016. So if you end the war on marijuana, you are effectively at least beginning the end of the war on drugs. Now, there are many facets to the war on drugs. There's the FDA. It's got to go. There's the DEA. It's got to go. There's a lot of things that need to change. But legalizing marijuana is a very important first step. It can perhaps finally be a gateway drug. It can be the gateway drug into treating people like humans, into not throwing them in cages for merely possessing a plant or putting a substance into your body that someone else doesn't approve of. That's wrong. That's wrong no matter what political ideology you you hold, as far as I'm concerned. Obviously, there are many people that disagree. That's why it's still illegal. But that's why we got to fight the front on the war of ideas. That's why I do this program. And that's why I invite you to join us and join this conversation. One way you can do so is by joining our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. All you got to do is type Lions of Liberty Forum in your little search bar on Facebook. It should pop right up. Just request to join. And as long as you look like a real human and not some kind of spam bot or a Nigerian prince, we're going to get you right in there. And not that I have anything against Nigerian princes. If you're an actual Nigerian prince and not a fake Nigerian prince, hey, maybe I'll let you in too. I don't think Nigeria has a prince, but you get what I'm saying. Now, regular listeners of this program will know I usually do have an advertisement uh, somewhere in the middle of the interview. I decided to forgo the ads today altogether because this is a very important interview to me. It's a special interview to me, and I really want to just leave it out there completely ad-free so you can listen straight through. Not have to be interrupted by me hawking wonderful products to you. Like... Our friends at Health Excellence Select. See, I'm still going to get it in. You can learn more about Health Excellence Select, our great sponsors, over at lionsofliberty.com slash health. And of course, you can support us by shopping through our Amazon link at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. That helps us keep the lights on, pay the bills, get these shows edited and produced in a way that is conducive to your earbuds. Now, as we all know, tomorrow is election day. I'm sure you guys are all going to want to hear some commentary from us about the results of that election. And of course, you will hear that commentary, but it will not be on Wednesday's show. That is simply too short of a turnaround for us because a lot of times these election results don't get in until midnight, 1 a.m. Well, guess what? That's when a new show drops. So we're not going to get you that commentary on Wednesday. Instead, I'm going to air an interview with a man named Stephen Hayes. He is the president of Americans for Fair Taxation, and he is a proponent of the so-called fair tax. This is a subject that a lot of listeners have been asking me to tackle, so I contacted Stephen, and we did a whole show about this fair tax. So for all you guys that have been pounding on me and knocking on the door and saying, get me this episode about the fair tax, it's coming for you on Wednesday. So, hey, the election will be over. Maybe it's time to think about some new ideas. And of course, folks, if you're a fan of this program, I first and foremostly ask you to do one thing, and that is to share this program. Share this program with your friends. Share it with your family. Share it with your Facebook feed. Share it from our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Retweet us over on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Any way you can share this program really does help it grow, help us get to more people, and help us expand the program, which is what we want to do. We're not laying down after the election's over, folks. It's only just beginning, and believe me, we have every intention of continuing to advance the ideas of liberty in 2017 and well beyond. And until next time, folks, continue to do one thing for me, and that is live long and live free.